0: no, no thank you, all done. It's so very important that our learners are able to communicate no with us. Today on episode 108 of the Autism Outreach Podcast, I am talking with Lisa Wallace about the power of no. Boy, this is a great action-packed episode and a topic that I don't think we cover Enough. So if you have students who are communicating no and you want to firm up how you are targeting this and embedding this into your intervention plan for your students, this is such valuable information. Lisa is a speech-language pathologist who has worked with young children diagnosed with autism and their families for over 25 years years. She's worked at the Bill Wilkerson Center in Vanderbilt in several school systems in Tennessee and in private practice. She communicates and collaborates with families, with RBTs, with BCBAs, with other speech-language pathologists, and she really has such great information to share. I'm excited for this episode, and let's get right on into it. You're listening to Autism Outreach Podcast, a podcast full of ready-to-use strategies to help those with autism strengthen their communication skills. Here's your host, Rose Griffin of ABA Speech, a speech therapist and board-certified behavior analyst who shares tips you can use in your next therapy session. Well, thanks so much for joining us on episode 108 of the Autism Outreach Podcast. We have a great episode today. Today, we have with us Lisa Wallace. Thanks so much for joining us, Lisa. It's nice to have you on.
1: Of course. I'm really happy to be here.
0: And I think I said before we turned on the record that I saw your name in this particular topic that we're going to discuss today through ASHA, that you did a talk for their autism conference. And I kind of get pigeonholed into who is in my orbit as far as who presents and who talks about autism. And so it's always really exciting for me to meet somebody new. And it sounds like you're doing such exciting work. So for those of us that are not familiar with you, can you tell us a little bit about you, your journey into the field, and kind of what you're up to now?
1: Sure. Um, So I am a speech language pathologist. Uh, What I do right now is work for the Treatment and Research Institute for Autism Spectrum Disorders, which is part of Vanderbilt University Medical Center. And I actually work primarily with board certified behavior analysts (laughs) who provide uh, ABA early intervention to really young children, like under the age of three Mm -hmm. um, in our clinic. And we do that through Um, primarily research support, but also provide some actual clinical services for Vanderbilt folks. Um, And I've been at Vanderbilt for a really long time. I started there as an undergrad. And a quick side note, I was a Russian poli-sci major, wanted to be in the CIA. Oh, wow. Back when I think parents didn't pay attention to what their kids were doing, because who would say that? Yeah, I'm going to send you to Vanderbilt to do that. But um a couple things happened. One is that my grandmother had a stroke and I also took a linguistics class from an amazing professor there Alice Harris and and found this thing called speech language pathology. And so um Vanderbilt didn't and still doesn't have an undergraduate major in that, but they allowed me to create an interdisciplinary major mm. and put together some courses that got me into taking courses at the graduate school there. Um, And so ended up in graduate school at Vanderbilt thinking I wanted to do adult um, rehab stroke victims. And after a couple of placements of that, really realized that was not it. Um, And I got placed in uh, at the Vanderbilt Bill Wilkerson Center, which is where the graduate studies were and are still um, into a group of preschoolers with autism. And I had never honestly really even liked kids that much at that point. And I did this group, and this woman, a great mentor of mine, Marianne McIntyre, who now lives in Arkansas uh, and is an SLP BCBA, she's like, This is what you're going to do. And I was like, Oh, thanks. But no, (laughs) this is not what I'm going to do. And then here we are 28 years later, and it's really all I've done. I mean, I've done. Primarily early intervention um, and young children, um, but a lot of caregiver coaching. And a lot of that has been through, over time, research-funded activities at Vanderbilt.
0: That's amazing. And what's so interesting, I'd love to hear how people got into the field because I... Have had so many people on that said I thought I was going to work and I had somebody else on who said Teresa Richards who has this whole big business for um, adult um, professional development and uh, she said you know I I thought I was going to work with kids and then she had a story that's totally different and now she works with adults and has this big company that's all about PD for adults but interesting how that happens and how mm-hmm. you kind of find your way and then you get into your groove and me and my one friend always talk about it would be hard to do something different in our field. Because even if it's in our scope of practice, if we haven't done it in a while, it's like we do what? <laughs> you want me to yeah. do what? You know, even if people change like early intervention to high school. I worked with both age groups. So I feel comfortable doing that. But even that switch from early intervention to maybe working in high school is a huge change in what you're doing in your daily job. So it sounds really cool that you've been able to be at Vanderbilt, which I'm sure is really, really exciting and a cool place to work. Um, so today we're going to talk about the power of no, which I really love. And I love the fact that you work with BCBAs as well, because I think that's so very important. And BCBAs are just tasked with so much language curriculum planning mm-hmm. that if they don't have a speech therapist as a consult, at least, that it can be really tricky. And it's so nice that you have that kind of collaboration. I wasn't um, sure about that. So tell us why is saying no such an important goal for our autistic learners and all students really?
1: Well, I think there's a few aspects to that. And one thing I would say, and and I know this is what you mean when you say it too, but this idea of saying no, I think sometimes people feel like we're saying children have to vocally or verbally say no, Mm -hmm. right? But really, they can do it. So it's really about communicating no.
0: Mm -hmm. And,
1: um, you know, sometimes when we work with caregivers, they'll be like, are you crazy? You're going to teach my child to say no. And we're like, your child is already saying no some way or another, they're already doing it. So what we're trying to do is build self-advocacy and self-determination skills and get him or her to be able to communicate that in a safe way, um, in an effective way that's understood as much as possible by others, or at least close caregivers. um, And in a way that we can reinforce as much as possible. Um, Obviously, there are some situations, especially with really little children, where they can communicate, know all they want, but for health or safety, it's just not a choice, right? Um, Mm -hmm. So to me, the biggest thing is really just this piece of self-advocacy and self-determination for young children. I think sometimes there's a perception that we can't start to address that until children are older, and really, I think in an in early intervention, we're tasked with setting a really strong foundation for that. Um, you know, and a lot of the critiques of ABA over the past few years are around this, that you mm-hmm. know we need to be providing, making sure that even young children, children who don't have effective, what we would maybe consider communication, right? So maybe there's behaviors we see that let us know that the child is protesting or doesn't want to do something. But even for those children that we're finding some way to have some meaningful assent into the -hmm. intervention that we're providing for them. So I just think, I think we spend a lot of time as speech language pathologists or behavior analysts focusing on, uh, you know, requesting, right, wants and needs and different Mm -hmm. things. But we have to carve out time to really practice the flip side of that and, and give kids a way to communicate no,
0: yeah, I love that. And I love the idea of being able to communicate now. And there is a lot of talk in the field. That's why I think it's so amazing that you're collaborating with BCBAs because people have been talking more about Ascent and that uh, that is a critique that ABA's too compliance based and things mm-hmm. of that nature so i think the fact that you're collaborating with other professionals is really great and and shedding light on something that we don't talk about enough and mm-hmm. i think those conversations are happening more that's why i'm so excited that you're on the <laughs> podcast today um so how do we assess now i have my slp and my bcba hat on here right. and i'm wondering and i'm thinking about all the assessments that i know about but And maybe it's more informal, but how do we assess a student's current ability to communicate no or they don't want to do something? So what is your how do you kind of go through that process of determining that this is an area of need?
1: Well, a couple of things I would say is that we identify this as a goal for every single child. So our perspective is that this is a this is going to be a goal <laughs> for every child. It's just a matter of exactly what it is that they need to communicate, right? There's lots of different things no can mean and then the how they're going to communicate it. And then um so so in terms of like Is it an appropriate goal for one of our children? Again, our children are so young that we know coming in that this is something they're going to need to work on. Mm -hmm. Um, But in terms of assessing it and kind of figuring out kind of what we're thinking about, so how is this toddler uh, communicating this either to people or within his environment right now? And we do pretty much use informal assessment um, because the standardized assessments are pretty much it's a yes, no question if it's even there. Yeah. And that certainly does not give you enough information to write a meaningful goal. And so right now, what we use, um, we're part of a study funded by the Department of Defense. And mm-hmm. we are comparing kind of more traditional ABA 20-hour-a-week programming to something called the social communication and engagement intervention. And as part of that, we developed a curriculum checklist. And on that, it has uh, information about how the child is protesting. And so it's pretty much an observational type thing. I think you could, you don't even need an informal measure Mm -hmm. to do it. You don't need a form, right? You can just make notes and talk to the caregivers about it. And I think there's, you know, we usually see a pretty broad range. So some kids come in and are sending really, whether it's verbal or not, really clear signals about when they don't like something or don't want to participate, right? They're giving a toy back, they're leaving the room, they're crying, they're throwing something, they're running away, all those kinds of things, which are really clear signals. And we can say, okay, well, so let's, let's, that this is how he or she's doing it now. What would be a safer, more effective way to do that? And then I think there are some kids that we see again, because they're so little, but, but I'm sure this can happen with older children as well that the cues are much more subtle, right? Like they may just be more passive and just not engage or not touch something or turn away or close their eyes. And so it's really, and this is one of the reasons that originally drew me to autism, honestly, is like this detective work, right? So (laughs) figuring out, and so getting to that point of all kids are in some way letting people know. And so asking parents, obviously, is huge or caregivers, what do you see at home? Is this consistent? And so- That's the first piece of it is how how is the child communicating now and and what are they trying to say? Are they saying no, never? Are they saying, I just need a minute or I want to do this with someone else or I just need a break? Or can I do this with different materials? Like there's all different ways that Mm -hmm. kids can say no. So long answer to that, but it is pretty much an observational, um, informal way of assessing this with a lot of caregiver input.
0: I love that so much because when I started my online business, which was five years ago when I started ABA Speech, I did talk about manding a lot. Now I have more of a focus on joint attention because I -hmm. I feel like that's where it's at. But I do think manning is important and it's something that should be in our programming. But I would talk about manding a lot. And and if you're listening and you're not a BCBA, you know, requesting, it's not exactly the same thing, but I'm just going to use those interchangeably. So don't come after me. But Requesting is important and oftentimes people, I would see preschool IEPs and, you know, they wouldn't have a goal for (laughs) requesting. They Mm -hmm. would have a goal for like prepositions or something that was just wildly not appropriate for the learner who was not yet speaking. Mm -hmm. But I always felt like it was tied to the fact that a lot of tests don't look at requesting unless Mm -hmm. you're a BCBA or SLP who's behaviorally oriented and you're using the VB map. Yeah. And it seems so important. Like we need to be able to ask for things that we want. It's just a part of the package. But I think that this idea of communicating that you don't want to do something or you want to do something differently, how you're describing it, is probably oftentimes not placed on an IEP potentially by a speech therapist. It might be part of more of a behavioral package where a BCBA is coming in because I feel like a lot of speech therapists might not be writing goals for this. Do you think do you think that's true? Because it's not assessed formally, I guess.
1: I think that's I think that's right to some degree, um, and I would love to come back and talk about the joint attention thing and how this okay. circles in, um, yes. if I can possibly remember. Oh yeah, then. but I think it is true. And again, our children are very young, but in the school age population or even early childhood, I, I do think a lot of times a protesting goal gets lumped. It's the children who are protesting using unsafe behaviors. So then it is the BCBA who tends to put that goal on there. Um, I do see goals on IEPs. And I actually had a number of online conversations with SLPs from the ASHA conference, which I really enjoyed because one of the points I made in that in that presentation was I actually do see this for young children, a good amount in goals, like, you know, it will say something like, we'll be able to communicate wants, needs, preferences, which within that you could imagine. My want is to get away from you or, or not do this activity. What I don't see as much, and I think this is also true, even when there are goals, behavioral goals around protesting, is that it doesn't get practiced. Mm-hmm. It doesn't get because you know, people wait and then all of a sudden this situation erupts and the child or student is dysregulated, and that's you can't practice then. Mm-hmm. And so there's something about this, like remembering, and and I get why that can be a little aversive and a little challenging, because we certainly don't want to spend our time purposely provoking young children right. <laughs> to practice protesting. But, you know, you can certainly work with caregivers and find situations that are not the thing that's going to send the child absolutely over the edge and just mm-hmm. do a little practice, right? I mean, just a little bit there and practice and model what they can say, have their AAC or visuals out as a way to model for them how they can leave a situation so that they you know, build that skill up and have it. So when they are approaching like a stress level that they might become dysregulated, they can maybe pull on that. Um, so I see it. I mean, I, I don't disagree with you that it's not the foremost goal, but even when I see it, I I feel like it gets left off of that level of practice mm-hmm. that we use for other skills.
0: Yeah. And we, you know, that reminds me of a student. We had a middle school student. We did have an outside Even though I'm an SLP BCBA, I was acting, I was worked in the schools for 20 years as a speech therapist Mm -hmm. and we had an outside BCBA and we had a behavior plan for a student. One of the things that they did practice almost daily was uh, going to an area just within the classroom where they, when they were starting to feel not regulated Mm -hmm. and it was really amazing. I actually saw it in action. I knew that the student was practicing this and I think the student was like sick when I was working with them one day and they asked to go to that area because they wanted to just have some time alone. You know what yeah. I mean? So makes me leave so me alone. Happy. Yes, oh it gosh. was. I worked in a great district. It was so fun because I live in Cleveland. It's a very small area. So all the consultants, I mean, I've known for 20 years. So for me, it was easy to collaborate. But It is. We don't practice those opportunities because then when it arises, it's not the correct time to work on that. So uh, yeah, I love that. So did you want to talk about joint attention? I'm curious what you wanted to note about that. I've been discussing and doing this talk for BCBAs and SLPs, and I've been calling it the power of joint attention. I used to have this talk called the power of manding, and now Mm -hmm. I've kind of pivoted just a little bit to focus more on this. I think because in my private practice, I've been working with so many young kids that I feel Mm -hmm. like This is where it's at to build those foundational skills. But yeah, what did you want to share about that? I'd love to hear it.
1: So uh, just kind of how these two things can potentially interact um, or intersect in terms of teaching. So when we talk about joint attention, which we obviously with young children with autism are also working on, it's kind of this idea of joint engagement, Mm -hmm. right? And so this piece of um, having the child engage with you. And what are the communicative or other behaviors that the child is using basically to assent <laughs> into the activity to engage so that you can have joint attention and then provide learning opportunities in there. But the flip side is looking at when kids or young children struggle to engage with something and what that kind of, if you want to call it removal of assent looks like. Mm. and and to me that removal of assent from the engagement is the p- perfect place to practice teaching a way to say no like this mm-hmm. is not what I'm interested in right now I'm not up for this I need a break I need a minute I need my mom whatever it is that they mm-hmm. can use to be effectively, remove assent or protest from that engagement. And then you can, so that's your teaching opportunity there is to model it and reinforce it and the child moves on. And then you pull back into the strategies that you would use to reestablish that joint attention and engagement. So I think it's, you know, I I do think there's a real art Mm -hmm. to doing this with really young children, (laughs) especially young children with autism who like one day they come in and they love this activity. And our RBTs will plan the next day for this, and the child comes in, and they're like, "Yeah, no, I'm not interested." And so you again, that you have to just be on your feet. So I just wanted to make sure, like I do think these things can work. It it takes planning and experience and a lot of training to learn how to make that ebb and flow. But that engagement piece is huge, and paying attention to when that engagement is lost, and that's your moment to model or teach that lower level, less stressful protest.
0: I love that so much. And I, I do believe it is an art form, a science and an art. I When I was working, I just gave up my one-on-one home clients to my another staff member at ABA Speech because um, I'm just getting too busy. But I had a client that I worked with for a long time. And I met him when he was two and he has autism. And it. I would do things like you're saying where it was, I like that idea of joint engagement. I've been calling it a shared activity that's mm-hmm. just like when I'm talking with parents and things. And I I know joint attention has a more technical definition, but I try to just keep it casual here. And... You can see like, okay, this isn't working. We're going to pivot to something else. We're, and those nuanced things, I feel like you just need opportunities to practice those within mm-hmm. the session. So I think that can be really hard. And I think as a, as a staff member who's training others to implement these interventions, these types of things are good to talk about because I think it takes time, but it takes the awareness to know that we can pivot within the session. It's not yeah. just, I need to get the data point and I don't care if you want to, don't want to play catch with the ball, <laughs> we're doing it. Yeah, I have exactly. to put this in central reach, whatever it is. Yeah. But we do, I think when you're tasked with that, when you're younger, you don't feel like you have that flexibility, but we need to like be detectives with the learner. I like that idea. That's, yeah. i big on And I think
1: too. that flexibility and creativity, and it, but then you also have to have that science part of mm-hmm. having clear you know, ABCs of teaching. So it is a lot. And, and we talked to our interventionist um, and this is related to this, but that I think a lot of times, especially young interventionists, they're learning so much that I feel like their head is so full and thinking <laughs> yes. about themselves that they can't focus on the child. And it's not, not, not focus. I mean, they're there, they're looking at the right. child, but really those nuances like, oh, you know what? This child just like turned their body, just the mm-hmm. littlest bit. And as a supervisor, I'm watching going, he's about to run. <laughs> yeah, right. and they're like did I did I take the date you know like so yes just get out of your own head and really look at who is in front of you at this moment so it is it's it's tricky it's a lot it's a lot
0: um so what would be a functional goal for saying no I'm just curious as how we might actually word it I don't know if you have an example I know sometimes IEP goal writing is is a major stressor for a lot of speech therapists. I know it was for me so I always try to help people in that area but or even a parent who's listening who's thinking yes, I need my kid needs this what how could we maybe? Take data on that, and I'm wondering, like, is it trial by trial? Are you using prompt data, or how do you write goals for this? I mean, it might be different in your setting, but what what can you share with us that might be helpful for people?
1: Well, I think you know the antecedent for the goal. So we always write some level of um, environmental or antecedent into our goals. So when blah blah blah. So in these cases, and again, it could vary child to child, but a general type goal would be when this child is presented with or encounters a non-preferred, you know, you can make it as big or as little as you want, kind of like an accordion, but non-preferred person, activity, situation, they will, and then that's where you would add whatever communicative behavior you're looking for for that particular child. Something that we do on our end, um, and this is relatively new, and, and that is that we are trying to make sure that within the behavior, the communicative behavior we're looking for, that some level of AAC is always an option for the protest goal, even if the child has verbal speech. Because I think you've probably always worked, not always, but run into folks who say, well, he can say this, he's just not. And it's because the child is at a level of dysregulation that they can't access mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that more symbolic communication. So, you know, so it may be when. When presented with or encounters a non-preferred situation or a stressful situation, the child will um, communicate, I need a break, or not right now, or no, I don't want to, whatever that message is, using words, gestures, facial expressions, AAC, whatever matches with that child's communicative profile. Um, And so that's how it would look in terms of, you know, if if our antecedent was going to be that we're going to kind of practice this and present um, some things. And so we would do I mean, we wouldn't do trial by trial in the sense that we're not going to repeatedly present a child with even like low level things they don't like. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And again, because our kids are so young. And their attention and engagement is kind of fleeting. We actually have lots of opportunities, natural Mm -hmm. opportunities. I mean, because it could also be that the goal is when the child is completed or or done with an activity, that they will communicate that in some way rather than walk away or dump it out or throw Mm -hmm. the toy or, you know, whatever it Mm -hmm. might be that they might do. And so, um, you know, with the ultimate goal being, you know, depending on how you take like, we'd love to see this happen in real life. So there's lots of practice. And like the best case scenario would be, right, like the mom says, you know, we went into the grocery store, we were having a hard time, I had his communication book with us. And I started to see him get anxious. And I and he looked in the book or he touched, I need to go. Mm-hmm. I need out. And that's a protest, right? Like, I need out of here. <laughs> um, and because this was a new skill, the mom said, okay, we're out. And that gets back to, I mean, there's other things to this, right? Like moms eventually can't, or dads, I don't to be mm-hmm. sexist about it, but, you know, <laughs> can't always leave the store. But when it's a brand new skill, we need to reinforce that really heavily. And then we'll pull back and put some visual supports in place, maybe a timer, maybe a, a token economy, something like that to show the child, okay, we just have a couple more minutes. Let's try and hang in there. I hear what you're saying, but we need to keep going. So yeah. Um, So those are the kind of goals, again, because of our population, we do tend to put lots of options for what the behavior, the protesting behavior could be Hmm. um, from verbal to nonverbal to AAC.
0: I love that. And I love the idea of having AAC available. I think that's important to to think about too. I I had a learner who I saw in a non-public school and they were completely conversational but had some very intense behavioral barriers. It was an older student Mm -hmm. and I I was always thinking about this student, like how can I help this student? And so one of the things I did, which is a little bit similar, I had a phrase chart for her. And so I taught the staff and I taught her that when she was feeling really upset or not regular, That she could communicate by pointing to those items, and I I know some people get stuck on that. And I'm sure it's not anybody listening to the podcast because you're listening to the podcast. But (laughs) we know people who say, "Oh, well, they can say it. Oh, they can Mm -hmm. do that, and they're just gonna make them do it." I mean, we can't. That's the thing with communication. I try to tell parents, we can't make it happen. We can lead up to, we can support the environment, we can do all the things, but we can't make your child communicate. And so... This is something that's important. So whether you're listening, working with younger kids or older kids, that is something that I did and uh, worked really nicely for that particular student. So I love that that is something to think about. So Mm -hmm. what are some strategies, if we're just kind of thinking this, and I'm I'm sure everybody listening has a student who probably fits this profile. And you know, what are some strategies that you could share that might be something that we could use? I know that that's kind of open-ended, but if you think of some things that maybe you typically do are helpful for learners, how can we kind of get started if this isn't part of our repertoire right now for our students?
1: Well, I think the first piece of it is planning for it. You know, so I mean, I know that's not a strategy, but like if you don't plan for it and actually provide opportunities to practice, then you don't even get to use strategies, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, talking with the caregiver, or again, if it's a young child, and there's lots of coming in and out of engagement, you'll have multiple natural opportunities, but You know, if it's a child or a student that you're seeing who's pretty engaged and you're always having fun and doing these activities, um, and then every once in a while they're having these challenging behaviors, right? You've got to actually think about planting (laughs) some things in there to allow some practice. And so I think coming up with maybe with the caregiver or if there are multiple interventionists, what are some things you've noticed that are less interesting to this student? Again, I don't want to pick something for practice that is going to really cause the child to become dysregulated. So what are some things that are, you know, mildly d- doesn't like that we could practice this with? Um, and so that would be, you know, one strategy is getting your antecedents set, right? And then the next would be having those visual supports out and being ready to model, Right. I think the other thing we don't want to get in a position of, um, at least at our clinic, we don't, is that, you know, if the child is is going to leave, and even if there's a visual, we're not going to physically prompt them back to touch something. So we're going to do mostly modeling around that. Mm-hmm. Right. We're going to say, oh, and try and use the words for what the child's actually communicating. So if that child's leaving because, you know, they're going to see mom, you know, I would model, oh, it's not this. I want mom. Or, <laughs> you know, if you can actually model the words that they want, model the AAC Um, and then the last piece, which sounds so obvious, but it it always, and I'm sure I'm guilty of it too, but it's, don't forget to use the right reinforcement. And in these cases, the reinforcement is (laughs) removal of the thing the child doesn't want. Mm -hmm. Right. So you'll see kids and they'll, you know, they'll be there and they're like, oh, well, we're just going to do it one more time. Or, oh, hold on. First, we got to clean it up or whatever it is. And so especially in that early stages, and especially if children have unsafe behaviors related Mm -hmm. to protesting, you know, you've got to break it down small, you've got to reinforce it like crazy. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, you know, the teaching strategy is going to be a lot of that modeling and making sure that you have and are respecting multiple ways, at least initially that the child might be communicating that.
0: That's great. And I love that. Such great information today. Thanks so much for coming on. And if people want to learn more about you and your work, is there a place that they could ask you a question or, or see what you're up to?
1: Um, Kind of. <laughs> a lot of the work that I do is in the research realm. And so it's not as easily accessible. But I think I shared with you. So there is a website for Triad. Um, and I can also send you, we have another website and it's called vkclearning.org. And what it is, is it's free online um, brief trainings. We call them bots, brief online trainings. And they go, there for caregivers and early interventionists and teachers and there's neurodiverse, all these different resources. And so that is a nice place to get. There's a lot of information that I shared today, especially related to behavior and communication um, in those modules. So I'm happy to share that as well.
0: Wonderful, awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on. It was great to connect.
1: Absolutely. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to Autism Outreach. If you enjoyed the show today, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode full of actionable strategies you can use in your therapy room. Write a review too. That would mean so much to me. I always love hearing from you. Have a specific topic that you want included on a future show? Reach out over on Instagram, ABA Speech by Rose, or visit me at www.abaspeech.org.